You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. bad guys in the SNL crisis in 89 to 92, the bad guys went to jail. Lots of guys went to jail, which is a good thing. This time, the bad guys did not. And by the way, they should have. My boss at Merrill Lynch, he definitely should have been the slammer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Harley Bassman, managing partner at Simplify. Harley is a 40-year veteran of the finance industry and has spent time working for Credit Suisse, Merrill Lynch, and PIMCO. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Harley. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Hello. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So as is our tradition, before we get into your trades, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and what was your background like, your childhood like? (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I know it sounds like a very loaded question, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I grew up in LA, went to school in San Diego, UCSD. I, I met my wife down there. I asked her, I met her on the very first day of, of college orientation. I asked her out for a date. She turned me down. I had no car. And of course, Southern California, that's a, it's a killer. Um, and we <laughs> met up again five years later. I went from uh, UCSD right to UChicago Business School, which you could do once upon a time, and uh, basically, you know, ended up on Wall Street at age 23, 24, uh, which also you can't do anymore. So were you always a sort of math and numbers guy or, you know, were you aware of finance? Did you always kind of know that was the direction you wanted to head in? Uh, not at all, as a matter of fact. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really didn't know much about anything. Um, neither of my parents actually graduated college, and I would never heard of an MBA. I actually learned about it in the lunch line my junior year of college. I overheard someone talking about it. I was like, what the hell is that? And that's how I ended up going to a, to grad school. I really didn't know what I wanted to do per se. I went there and a salesman from uh, either Sally or Goldman showed up and was telling us these stories and said he made half a million dollars a year. This is 1982. And like my eyes popped out of my head like, well, this sounds like a good idea. And I was hired to be a salesperson in treasury bonds by Drexel. In the Chicago office, they took me to New York for three months of training. While I was there, I asked the guy, sincerely, can I trade for like two or three months just to learn the product? And then I'll go and sell, you know, in Chicago. And I ended up being an option trader. So you're in New York, you're trading. And I think you're in New York at this time. Your first trade is one of your best. And that's buying call options on mortgages in 1987. So how much experience do you have at this point? Sort of set the scene for us as to where you are in your career and what's happening in life. I started on Wall Street in 83. Financial futures just started like a couple of years before. Options on futures and options on treasury bonds started like one, one and a half years before. Uh, once upon a time, like I had hair, I had, you know, a little less weight and I was a geek, a nerd. I wrote the first uh, option programs at Drexel for trading bonds. And the whole thing was kind of self-taught because there was no option business. I mean, I started the option business at Drexel. Uh, myself, an equity guy and uh, this burned out old geezer um, 
who was 36. Uh, <laughs> of course he was yeah, burned yeah. out by then. That's about yeah, right. So, I guess. Uh, hopefully he's not watching this thing. In any case, <laughs> so I uh, kind of self-taught. You kind of learn these things as you went along. And I ended up at Merrill Lynch in 85. And then uh, come uh, 87, I started the mortgage option business at, at Merrill. Bond prices were high in April. And then the market went down and some guy owned call options. And they were struck at 100 and the market went to 90. And he's saying, these options are worthless. I'm going to get rid of them. And he puts them up on the broker market that I could buy them for basically a penny. In theory, they're worth zero with mm-hmm. the model. And I look at it and say, it's a penny. Like, it's a lottery ticket. Why not? And so I bought a couple hundred million of these things in like, you know, April, May, June of 87. And then all of a sudden the crash happens in October. And these bonds go in short order from 90 to 105. Thus, I bought my first beach house. Yeah, exactly. On, on the bonus I got for that. And beach houses were a lot cheaper back then. It's incredible, though, because this is a really new area. It's kind of frontier area, right? So did you feel a lot of risk putting that kind of trade on? Or were you like, who cares? It's a penny. I mean, this is all new. You know, did you feel like you were in it, your job was on the line taking that kind of risk? Or was that just part of what people did at that point in this new kind of frontier market? I think if paying an op, paying a penny for an option gets you fired, you're in the wrong job. The, the, the idiocy was the guy selling it. I mean, as a rule, I won't sell an option for under like a quarter point, no matter what the model says. Because remember, when you have an option, it's a nonlinear payoff profile. If you own the option, the most you could lose is what you pay for it. The most you can make is infinite. Right? I mean, the GameStop guys were kind of taking this thing to the next level. And if you sell an option, your gain is limited and your loss is infinite. Why would you sell an option for a penny? The most you can make is a penny? That's, that's idiotic. And I actually know the guy who, it's actually the guy who took my job at Drexel. I bought it from him. So um, I think the lesson there, I'd say, and I've mentored a lot of people, and is that use common sense. You know, people who go to, to college, especially nowadays, they pressure of getting into college or doing well in school is I got to take the test. I have to get the right answer. If I get the right answer, I'll get a high score. I get a high score. I'll get into a good school or, or get a success. They look at the numbers that pop out of a machine and say, there's the ember. That's the answer. I'm just going to use it. And they have zero common sense. The option model said that option was worth zero. Yes, it was worth zero, theoretically, unless lightning strikes. And it's not like I knew lightning would strike. It was just such a skewed risk return payoff. People need to use common sense sometimes and understand that a model is not the right answer. It's basically kind of the middle line of a distribution of possible outcomes. It's not the answer. It's just the best guess of what an answer might be. Uh, And this is the same reason why I don't skydive, which I would love to go and do, except for the small detail that the one in a trillion chance that I pull the ripcord and all I have is cord in my hand uh, and I still have a, a few miles to go to think about it. This is why I don't skydive. Yeah, it's it's actually what stopped me from skydiving as well because I'm also intrigued by it. But then I think, well, let me run these probabilities through, and they're they're in the end still a little too high for me. You know, it's interesting that you, what you say about common sense. Do you feel like there's less of it now because we rely on technology and algorithms, or do you think this is just a an age old situation where people kind of get locked into this way of thinking and forget to just gut check and look around and use their own eyeballs? It's certainly much worse now. It's gotten progressively worse over my 40 years on Wall Street or or life in general. As we've added more technology, the ability to go and and hit a button and have an answer pop up to you and seeing a number on a spreadsheet gives you 
comfort that you've done something right and here's an answer and you check your spreadsheets and it all works. I mean, it's a false security. This is where you need to have real life, real life experience. Um, everything's reinforced though. I mean, think about the, the college process. It's all the, checking these boxes and getting these various scores, you know, doing these various things. I guess it gets you into college or into grad school or into medical school or into law school, I, I, which is a good thing. But once you get there, I think they should be teaching some kind of process to have common sense, a real, real life experience, which brings up my old 36-year-old boss at the time, he had a, a little sign on his desk, which at the time was, was, I thought was very offensive. But now I spent the last 30 years looking for this sign so I could put it on my desk, which is age and treachery will win out over youth and skill. Ah. I kind of, kind of respect that now. Yeah. So the success you have with that, because it sounds like it was an amazing trade, did that success change the way you thought about your skills or that others in the business viewed you? You know, did it really sort of increase your confidence? I mean, I, I didn't feel a whole lot smarter. It did make other people think I was smart. I, I did not disabuse them of that idea. Uh, <laughs> but if they only knew. But no, I wasn't a genius. I just, you know, got lucky. So your second trade is also one of your best. This is in a completely different area of the market. So fill us in on the sort of journey that got you there. But this is from 1998 to 2006, buying local shares of the Russian company Gazprom, which I think many of us are familiar with now, using an intermediary broker based in Cyprus. So first of all, have you moved out of options now or are you just looking much more international? Like what put this on your radar? Well, this, this was a personal account trade. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a company trade. I was already familiar with Russia and as a, I guess, a gas station with nukes. But I mean, <laughs> they have hard assets, hard commodities. And I like the idea of commodities. And at the time, oil, sometime a little before that, oil was like $12 a barrel, which is kind of insane. But, you know, that's where it was. And I wanted to find a way to get into this. I had gotten involved in a uh, another Russian investment, Russian hedge fund, a Firebird fund, um, which was very successful. And... 98 happened, Russia almost went bankrupt, everything went down. I was looking and thinking, like, this is a very interesting opportunity. And Gazprom is this gigantic, uh, you know, they have the most gas in the world. I had some ex-Maryland colleagues start a hedge fund up, and they found a way to create a an entity, a legal entity in Cyprus. And at the time, you could only buy the actual shares if you're a Russian citizen, you're in Russia. Mm -hmm. If you're outside that, you can buy the ADRs. Gazprom was trading for a dollar, and the ADR in London was trading for $10. That's how valuable the company was to people in the West. And they were willing to pay 10 times as much to get a hold of these of this Gazprom entity. I invested money, never enough, of course, in this kind of thing. Bought the local shares via this entity in Cyprus. Cyprus is kind of like, uh, you know, Isle of Man or these other, you know, the Cayman Islands. These yeah. entities that kind of have legal relationships in Cyprus, of course, is where all the Russian oligarchs hide their money. I was going to say, with a big emphasis on Russia, it's that kind of offshore entity, but with a huge leaning always toward Russia, Greece and Russia. Yeah, the oligarchs set it up basically to move their money there. And then after that, they go buy condos in New York City and London. A little skeezy, but nonetheless, I felt that at some point that ring fence, what they call it, would collapse and the two prices would come together. Now, it could come together a lot of ways. The London price could go to a dollar or the local shares could go to 10 or something like that. But I knew they would have to collapse. And also, once it collapsed, that would allow Russia to go into the main indices. 
Right. Right. They weren't allowed into the index because of the way they were set up. And I kind of felt at some point in the future, they'd have to get rid of that ring fence. They'd have to join the indices and, and access Western capital to go and do stuff. I mean, I mean, I mean, Russia, they have a lot of oil there, but they don't have the technology or the capital to go and develop. And, and most of the, of the big majors, you know, Shell or BP or Exxon, I had relationships with Russia to partner on these various things. And lo and behold, you know, eight years later, um, the ring fence came down in 2006. The thing collapsed. It turns out that basically eight years went to 40 and the you know, price of gas and went to 40 also. It got put in the index and I got out. Yeah. Um, it was like a 40x trade, more like 50x if you the tax benefits and everything else. So it was pretty incredible. So did you feel at the time that it was a really risky trade? I mean, was that your profile? Are you somebody who normally takes risks like that? And also you're risking your own money at this point. You never put enough into trades like this. And the money I put in was, I mean, all things like this, it, look, it's an option. I mean, the, the payoff profile is just gigantically skewed. Did I think it'd be 40 to one? No. Did I think it'd be five or 10 to one? Yeah, I did. And, and my downside is what I put in. If I lose it, I'm sad, but there's just so much convexity to this thing. And basically, everything I've done involves optionality. And you, Chicago, the, the, where I went to school, that's the home of Black Scholes. Black Scholes model came about in 1973. Myron Scholes was still teaching at the business school when I was there uh, in 81 to 83. Um, I actually could have taken the Myron Scholes class, but the rumor has he was incredibly boring, so I took someone else instead. But I mean, we were doing Black Scholes by hand on paper back then, and, and you kind of understand how the whole thing works, what the models are telling you, and, and the value of convexity. And, and mortgage securities, there is a, they're an incredibly convex, negatively convex instrument um, that weird things can happen to them. And so I kind of, that's the pond I swam in. Yeah. It's interesting, that trade, because you had to be pretty patient, right? I mean, this is over a period of time before the real payoff happened. So there must have been a period where you were sitting in it, just sort of sticking to your guns, thinking that there was still a good chance that there'd be a payout on this. This wasn't like a, a week-long trade, was it? It was eight years. Eight years. <laughs> I mean, not not to, that's a plug. What I do, I, I work for Simplify Asset Management. We've created a product which I, I can't give the ticker for. I get in trouble, yeah. but you got to look it up. And it's a seven-year put option on a thirty-year Treasury. Effectively, I knew rates. And we issued it last year. We knew rates were going up. We knew the printed money. We're getting the inflation. That was obvious. We just didn't know when it would happen. And so, having a seven-year option gives you the time to be right. Because uh, buying a three-month or six-month option, that, that's that's very hard. Knowing what's going to happen isn't that tough. When it's going to happen is much, much harder. Yeah, and it, but it seems like everyone's view is really short-term right now. I mean, we know that certain parts of the market, you know, have quarterly performance or they have to, hedge funds have to report to their shareholders. But it seems like the entire mindset of the trading market, even retail, is with that really short-term perspective. This is human nature. People want the goodie right now. It's the marshmallow test, right? That they did, you know, 50 years ago when the, when the, when the four-year, five-year-olds walk into the room and they say, here's a marshmallow on the table. You can hit it right now. If you don't eat it till I come back in the room, I'll give you two marshmallows. And then they did this experiment and they then followed these kids, you know, decades later. And the kids who waited and got the two marshmallows did better in, you know, not just money, but in marriage and everything else. Uh, over life. Having this patience was a positive attribute. Why people have it is unclear, but having patience is certainly a valuable idea. Do you think it can be learned? Do you think that's a skill that can be learned? I 
think that it can be, I won't say trained, but offered to your children if you do it right. Yeah. Look, you're, I have four kids. Your kids become you. They're watching you all the time. You can say this and that, but however you're talking to them, really, they're watching you. Your kids become you. And if you exhibit patience in how you, and tolerance, how you operate, your kids will probably be that way also. If you're an impatient person, if you yell and scream, your kids will probably do that too. So, um, and of course, you know, raising your kids and your family is the, is the highest priority yeah. over everything else. And toughest job and, and why we have to keep working at it because we all, we all sort of succumb to that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's the difference between conviction and stubbornness? So, when you're looking at a long trade like that, this comes up all the time because people question themselves. You know, they'll write in and say, I feel like this is my view, but I, I don't know if I should sell. I don't know if I should stay with it. I don't know if I should buy more. Is there is there a fine line or do you clearly understand the difference between when you're convicted about a trade and you want to stick with it or when you're kind of maybe too married to it and you're not paying attention to other signals? Look, buying is very easy. Selling is actually much harder to do. Netflix. You know, who knew when to sell or when to buy or whatever right now? I frequently say sizing is more important than entry level. Trying to time the market, I think, is a fool's errand. I don't think you could do it. And conviction is, I think, sizing a trade. So if you're right, it makes a difference. If you're wrong, it doesn't kill you. When you take on a trade too large, you can't ride it out. That's where you get in trouble. Uh, when you use leverage or margin, you get in the pickle that way. March 2020 was really all about not selling at the bottom. And that was really it. If you didn't get stopped out, you survived it rather quickly, too. There's some number, if you miss like the top seven or eight or 15 trading up days over the course of, I don't know, a decade, like you make no money at all. It's hard to be in the market on those days. Um, we're social creatures. We like being with our friends. We like to go and share ideas. We want to go to, a, to the bar and say, oh, I bought this and I did that. Who wants to be the, the outsider? I mean, I won't say we're lemmings, but, but it does have that same kind of, you know, zip code. And so it's very difficult to not want to be with the crowd. And so that's why at the top, it just feels great because everyone's in and everyone's talking about it. You're part of the gang. And when at the bottom, you're hiding under your desk and crying for your mommy. Um, <laughs> and even for me, I will tell you that at the top, I just want to buy more. At the bottom, I just want to sell everything. I feel it, which is why I got to size things properly. So I don't, I'm not forced to go and do something. And then having a process, uh, if it gets to a certain level that you think comfortable sell half or sell calls against it, something like that to go and do it. Um, you know the expression, you know, bulls, bears, and pigs. Bulls make money, bears make money, pigs make nothing. Yeah. And nobody ever, ever lost money taking a profit. So your third trade is one of your worst, speaking of knowing when to sell and hold. And this is not selling your Merrill Lynch stock in 2007 ahead of the great financial crisis. So where are you at this point? You know, what's happening in 2007 heading into this? I had run the uh, the mortgage desk. I actually brought Merrill's first subprime deal uh, in like 01. I basically trade almost everything in the mortgage market. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar. And I kind of left that and I went into more of a prop trading job I will say I've done pretty well, okay? 
Merrill gave us, they give us stock, but they used to give us 10-year stock options. And as an options guy, I could value them. And they were giving us these options like at a quarter theoretical value. I would go to the boss end of the year and say, I'll take the options instead of stock because the stock is like it's valuable right now. If the stock's trading at 50, you know, a year later, if it's still 50, then you have 50 bucks. But an option that's trading at 50, still you've, you've made nothing. But the value of these 10-year options is utterly insane. And Mark went up. I sold options from time to time to go buy real estate to my apartments or whatever else it might be. Um, but I had a lot of Merrill stock. And by now, Merrill's trading at 98. They first started giving options like 15 years ago. I think the stock was like three, split adjusted. So we're talking like a 30-bagger from this wow. thing going up. I knew mortgages were the wrong price. I knew there was a bubble. In fact, everybody knew there was a bubble in 04 and 05. Every mortgage guy knew it was a bubble. We just didn't know what it was going to pop. I'm glad you clarified that every mortgage guy, every person in finance in the mortgage area knew, but people didn't know. You know, the ordinary folks buying homes and stuff, they didn't know uh, that was going on. Uh, The movie The Big Shark, it's a documentary. It Mm. it comes across as a comedy. It's really a documentary. Everything is true. I I know most of the players in that. You just don't know when it was going to break. I thought, okay, it'll break. It'll be housing prices go down and I'm whatever, whatever. Uh, but I'm at Merrill Lynch and I'm going to be fine. Uh, I mean, I'm at the investment bank, but we also have the the uh, stockbrokers, just separate business, which is worth, I don't know, 20 odd billion dollars. We have Merrill Lynch Asset Management that we end up selling to own a 59% stake of BlackRock. And we owned 40% of Bloomberg. Merrill was the backer of Bloomberg, by the way. He, if you remember, he, he got fired from Solomon. They wouldn't support him. Merrill backed him. Yeah. So we're owning all these incredible assets. Like, I don't care what's happening, man. And my limit at the time when I was running mortgages in like 0102, like a billion dollars in subprimes where I could own. So I'm figuring, fine, maybe, I, maybe, maybe we own four or five now. And I get a call from a guy saying, you guys own nine. I go, you're nuts. Bear's broken, but everything's still okay. And for those tracking this, Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns um, which yeah. was just shot across the bow, right? Sold for $2. No one can believe it. Yes. Well, yeah. I've actually talked with Bear before they got sold, when the hedge fund got margin called. Okay. But I, I figured that we were very solid. And I go to a, I'm on the finance committee of one of my kids' schools, and I get there early. And across the table from me is Steve Eisman. Now, Steve Eisman is the uh, Carol character in the movie. Steve Carroll plays him, yeah. Yeah. And he's the guy that like in the big auditorium, he stands up and waves and said, talk to the countrywide guy, like you guys went bankrupt, this and that. And everyone runs out the door. This is the same goes before the movie. Okay. And, and he, he, he sits down across from me. He looks at me, he goes, you look at Merrill, don't you? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, um, you should sell everything. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes you're going bankrupt. Now this is way before everything ever happens over there. And I think he's just nuts. And I go through, well, we own this, we own this, we own this, blah, blah, blah. He goes, you're going bankrupt, just sell everything. Of course I don't. And I should take Merrill's stock from 98 down to, you know, 11, where it got bought by Bank of America. So that was, um, it was sad. So Steve Eisman obviously has great sort of notoriety now for being so vocal. People thought he was crazy. I mean, the stuff he was talking about seemed impossible. You know, there's so many villains involved in the housing crisis. You know, Wall Street's one of them, but but so are the clients, and so is Fannie and Freddie, and so is the government. There's a lot of villains involved that conspired together to go and create uh, these various problems. Um, from a technical side, was that the whole structure was built on the idea of diversification, 
we have this structure of CDOs where you take a bomb from Exxon and from Kodak and from uh, Facebook and Apple, all these various things, and you assume one goes down, the other goes up, so you're diversified if you own 50 names, 50 diverse names in a portfolio of bonds. The idea was, well, let's go take this idea to the next level. We'll say Texas versus Florida versus California versus New York, and we're diversified now. Uh, turns out you're not. <laughs> that they all went down together. And so the whole concept exploded on people. And that's, we were selling this idea, as was S&P and Moody's. I mean, they weren't, yeah. I mean, were they villains? I don't know if they're villains or not, but I mean, they, they believed the story. At the time, what really drove this was the Fed and our client base. People were lined up out the door begging for mortgage bonds. We couldn't make, we couldn't make them fast enough. And they were they wanted them because uh, Greenspan had taken rates down so low. Yeah. Um, so very similar to what we have right now. But, but there's not, we have, fortunately, we have Dodd-Frank, which limits the risk people can take. But, you know, the Fed took rates down and people go and they buy junk bonds or they reach for yield in some other way. Um, so and that, it's a similarity now, but it'll be a different outcome. Well, and and that's the thing. That's the trick of what everyone's trying to to, to look out and see, right? What breaks? Like, where are there not safety measures in place? And everybody screamed about all those regulations, by the way, as you well know, that were put into place. But, you know, the idea was to try to prevent something, to put some guardrails on, to try to prevent that. A lot of people are looking around and saying, what parts of the market don't have the guardrails on where you could see all that excess pile in? And then, of course, the other thing we learned was counterparty risk, right? It's amazing. I think there's sort of civilians out there think, oh, everybody on Wall Street knew what was going on. No, there were a lot of people that were completely shocked by the events because they didn't think firms would go, um, firms that had been around through everything would fail, and they didn't really snake through what all that counterparty risk was. It was really extraordinary. I mean, there's many things that contribute to our politics now. One of them is that the bad guys did not go to jail this time around. The bad guys in the SNL crisis in 89 to 92, the bad guys went to jail. Lots of guys went to jail, which is a good thing. This time, the bad guys did not. And by the way, they should have. My boss at Merrill Lynch, he definitely should have been the slammer. And the way you get people like that is the same way Al Capone didn't go to jail for killing people or bootlegging. Went to jail for tax evasion. Right. On Wall Street, we have the exact same thing. It's called failure to supervise. It's your catch-all, and you can get anybody. You can indict a ham sandwich. And that's how they should have gotten, you know, the bad guys at Merrill and at Lehman and at Bear Stearns. At the very least, kind of strung up for a while to show people that there are rules in place and you can't do bad things. And the thing is, is these, you know, bosses said, well, I didn't see it coming. And it's like, well, sure, I didn't either, by the way. Um, but I will say this, if you're paid 30 million a year, you're paid to make sure that if something bad happens, the firm doesn't go down, you might lose some money. You have to size everything properly. Ah, that's it. That's it, sizing properly. I think you just hit on something really important because the reason that no one went to jail. First of all, we, we didn't have enough room for all the people that were potentially <laughs> culpable, but they all said, and they testified, remember all those hearings? Well, like I could only see this part. I didn't see the whole picture. But what they didn't really discuss is why you weren't sized properly. You know, why this became a systemic problem. That's the bit that never really went under the microscope. And you're absolutely right about that. Merrill Lynch owned 45 billion in CDOs with 40 billion in capital. Like, are you nuts, man? Like, who even thinks of this? At the very top of the firm, this number was known. Now, do we have other losses? Yeah, we have other bad things going on. But the bottom line is, how do you own more than your capital in a single asset? 
you know, anything could happen. And that's why you get paid $30 million is to make sure you don't, you don't do that. Do you think Wall Street's wiser and less levered now? I will say that I'm one of the few senior Wall Street people who believes in Dodd-Frank. I think it was a good thing. It was a good public policy concept. You need to have guardrails. You need to have, there's no game without rules. So you need to have rules to keep people. Should Wall Street firms be allowed to speculate, be hedge funds, do prop trading? If you're a private company funded by yourself, the answer is yes. Your shareholders then take the risk. And if you lose money, they lose their money. If you are a bank who can take deposits in at the, a government-guaranteed rate, right? Passive deposits are guaranteed, so therefore people are giving you money at a rate not at your credit, but at the government's credit, right? Passive accounts right now yield 0.1, even while the funds rate is, you know, a buck and change because it's lock-solid money. If you want to be able to raise money at the government, I'll call it subsidized rate, then you can't go and speculate with that money. I'm sure that Goldman and Morgan are sadly are pretty sad they became banks because that took away the ability. Well, that's how they survived, though, right? I mean, at the time, that was the yeah, that, that was know, the trade. That was the cost of the cost of living was the was that for now until they figure out a way around it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I'm curious. It's so wild that Steve Eisman sat across from you, <laughs> said sell everything. That's a crazy story. But how do you separate good advice from just wild speculation? Because he seemed like a madman at the time. I mean, there are a lot of people who are like, you're nuts. How do you separate those two? He was not a madman. I mean, like I said, we knew in 06 there was a bubble. I mean, my comment was, I didn't think Merrill would go bankrupt. Right. And I thought maybe the stock would go down, but it would then But come he back said, up. you're going bankrupt, sell everything. Yes. That was an extreme, that was an extreme position. How, how do you separate out, you know, like those what, what turns out to be like a very clarion, you know, moment and people who are seen around the corner from, from you know, that kind of advice from just the noise. I, I don't know. I mean, once again, you make sure that you can survive. I mean, look, I'm still here. I'm, I'm in the Laguna Beach. So <laughs> I, I guess I, I had it sized right. I lost a lot of money, but I mean, I did survive that. So it's just a matter of having a long-term view and having a, 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 a very wide angle of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and not getting caught up in the moment of what's going on. So your fourth and final trade is also one of your worst, at least so far, that's selling your puts on Citibank stock. <laughs> the day is young. We're in, a, we're in a very fragile period right now. But that's selling your puts on Citibank stock with a strike price well under tangible book value ahead of March 2020 and missing out on some pretty huge gains. So what are the circumstances around this trade? Book value is an interesting concept. Warren Buffett talks about book value, but book value is meaningless nowadays. Um, how do you have book value for Apple or Facebook? I mean, the book value, I mean, is what their chairs and their computers? The value of these companies is the people who walk out the door every day. Book value for like General Motors gets more interesting because they have a factory and there's a cost to build a factory, but it's still kind of squishy. Book value for a bank is the real deal. Book value is what is the securities they own and you can sell them and liquidate the company. Now, for a bank, they have something called goodwill. So when you have some of the large banks 
that are built by, you know, dozens and dozens of takeovers. The target bank might be worth $100, but they pay $200 for it. So two times book, um, which is common. They take the book value and they, 100 bucks, they put that in the, on, the spread, on the balance sheet. Take the extra 100, that, and that goes to goodwill. It's an intangible. It's an extra money they paid for it. They got put the, somewhere and they put it in the intangible. Tangible book value. So you strip out all these intangibles. So risk that you're getting down to is, if I just go and hit the bid and sell everything, what's the darn thing worth? And for a financial, a Goldman or a JP, or it's a solid number. They can't sell everything right away, but, you know, that's, that's kind of okay. Citibank was trading, you know, well under book. It's trading like, you know, 59, 62, somewhere in there, book is an intangible 70. And every other bank out there is trading well over book. I mean, I mean you know, 1.6 probably for JP, 1.3 for Bank America, and Citi's trading at like 85. So, okay, it's because there's, they're the last bank to revive from the GFC, you know, and I'm going to go, what I did was actually, if you go into my uh, website, convexdmaven.com, I actually wrote about this exact trade uh, a couple of years ago. I did a risk reversal. So I sold the put and bought the call on Citibank for zero, thinking, okay, if it goes to 1.2 tangible, uh, it's, it's an 80, and I can go and like sell the 55 put and buy the 65 call for zero cost, and I'm a hero. And if I get the stock at 55, whatever. I mean, tangible 70. I mean, I mean really? Oh, this was not a good idea, clearly. Um, and the stock proceeded to go to um, 37 in mm. March 2020. As it got to like 48, it's like I just pulled the ripcord and said, I'm out. I thought it was going on over here and I'll take my loss and that's it. That's probably the biggest... It's probably the biggest loss I've booked in, in trading. I felt pretty, pretty good about that trade. And also, I guess it wasn't sized right. That was sad. But I mean, I still feel good about the whole thing. I, I lost money. I made money elsewhere. So, uh, but Citi's a value trap. Um, and now it's trading like in the high 40s still. I still don't get what's going on with Citibank. They, they just can't get out of their own way. The stock looks great on paper. Um, they just can't figure it out. They're too far flung. Their systems have not pulled it together. Every analyst loves them as huge targets. I'm done with Citibank. So, <laughs> so what did you what did you learn What did you learn from, or what's the takeaway from that? Do you think? I mean, it's not really a takeaway per se because I made money on other trades. I mean, I will say, I guess I'll circle back that I got married to the idea of the spreadsheet. That I'm looking at the balance sheet. It says seventy for tangible, and I said it's a solid number, and I kind of ignored like. Why is Citibank still trading under tangible and everyone else is going up? Maybe something I don't know here. It was a spreadsheet bet as opposed to people saying Citibank is a value trap and they can't get out of their own way. Well, they were right. You have so much experience. Is it hard to sort of swallow the trades that don't work as you get older? Because you think, you know, you've seen it all. You should be able to use all that experience. Or do you, you know, how do you view those failures or the ones that don't work out? Look, Wall Street is Candyland. Okay. Uh, even today, I mean, people get paid less than they did 20 years ago, but it's Candyland. Okay. It's indoor work with no heavy lifting and, and you're paid a pretty well for a job like this. And once you get, this is why you go get an MBA or you do well in college is you want to get to Candyland. The goal of Candyland is not to get tossed out of Candyland. You just want to stay in Candyland. This is really easy. You do this by you never lie. You tell the truth. You never miss Mark. If you're going to lose money, you tell your boss, I'm losing money. This is why. 
don't get thrown out of Candyland. And that's it. Um, so when things go bad, it gets to a point where I have a, a limit. Even though I think I'm still right, I don't care. Pull the plug, take my loss, start again. Don't get thrown out of Candyland. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Truth be told, I'm happy to go and take a loss because the pain's done. And there are times I'll tell you, when you start being overwhelmed by certain trades where you can't think anymore and you can't make money on other stuff because you're so involved in this one black hole of, of blood, you put a tourniquet around your neck and you squeeze until you stop breathing. I mean, just <laughs> cut the loss, okay? And that is really it. You just go, you walk over and you say, what price can I get out of this thing at? Yours. Don't care. I'm, I'm done. Uh, and that's important because what happens is, is the money you might make back in this bad trade is dwarfed by money you can make in other trades once you clear your head. Absolutely. And so that's kind of the advice. Big picture advice I give to people is this. Prioritize your life. You're born, you live, you die, and you're dead for a very long time. That actually, much longer than you think. Go, the graveyards are full of irreplaceable people. Go with your family, travel. If you're watching this show, I can assure you could probably go and afford a vacation, go on vacation. When you go on vacation, turn off your phone, don't read the paper, they don't need you, go with your family. When I went on vacation, and admittedly, this is before the internet, really, I was not allowed to read the newspapers for a week. When people work for me, when they would go on vacation, if they called in and asked how things were going, I'd say, things are fine. Click. I hung up on them. <laughs> it's not your job to go. Your job is to go and relax, decompress, and reset your head. The people who can't release, um, they're the ones that go down on flames. You need to go give your brain time to you know, relax and rejuvenate. Please yeah. do that. That is just fantastic advice. Harley, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on My Life in Four Trades. Thank you so much. Have a good day. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.